Okay, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 8. So we've been going through the Psalms, and uh, it's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. And it, it's kind of, um, when someone asks you what your favorite book of the whole Bible is, I feel like it's almost cheating to say that Psalms, <laughs> because it has such a wide range, <laughs> but, but it kind of is my favorite. And, and even as looking at um, all the different Psalms, you know, it's hard to say, because there's many as you could say, this is one of my favorite Psalms. And Psalm 8 is, is one of those, but there's so many others that I could say the same as well. But... Uh, I think of Psalm 8 often when I, uh, especially out in nature, um, and that's, that's one of the themes that we'll see throughout Psalm 8, but let's read it and we'll get into it. <clears throat> o Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens, from the mouth of infants and nursing babies. You have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this psalm, help us to consider those things which David was thinking about, which he was meditating upon when he wrote this psalm, to think about your creation and your glory displayed in your creation and just uh, your glory in general, your beauty and majesty, your infinite wisdom. Help us to reflect upon these things and to even lose ourselves in the contemplation of your glory. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that you have condescended down to man, that you have revealed yourself to us through your creation and through your word. We thank you and we ask that you would bless our time this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> There's a, somewhat of a paradox concerning mankind or humanity or more precisely human behavior in that we in our fallen state we think and behave as if we're the most significant person or thing in our world and we, we might not say that but it's it's uh it's evident in the fact that most of our thoughts revolve around ourselves or we think of things um, in perspective of self, in this sense that we um, think and behave as if we're the most significant person or thing in our world is manifested also in the way we live. Yet um, the paradox is that we feel most alive when we are confronted with our own insignificance, when we perceive something that is far more significant than us, something like uh, natural beauty, something like um, the Grand Canyon, or seeing the Milky Way um, and the unobscured night sky and all the stars and all its glory, um, you know, out in, say, a, a desert that is where there's uh, no light pollution, or to uh, witness uh, a glacier breaking off into the sea as we see in those, um, you know, those videos of 
say an Alaskan cruise or whatever, or see a volcano erupting from a distance or a tornado forming. Um, our significance is found in our insignificance um, when we are confronted with the fact that we are so much smaller and so much more insignificant than we think. And, and we see that in these times in which we can dwell upon uh, the grandeur of God's creation. And there's a sense that we find ourselves by losing or forgetting ourselves in the midst of something far greater than ourselves. And we see that um, more often than not in creation, but there's also a sense that we are to see that in relationship to God. And, and there is a sense that we, God has uh, created the universe and creation in such a way that we would reflect upon it and see his grandeur. Uh, most notably in um, the stars and the planets, as we think, and, and we're blessed in our uh, day and age to have technology that can view into the depths of the space and, and even see colored pictures of just the grandeur of the universe, the, the immense uh, magnitude of uh, creation, its scope and its size, uh, galaxies and, and stars and nebula. Um, I like what, it's interesting, uh, in just thinking along those lines, um, I found a quote by Charles Spurgeon. And it's interesting what he says concerning this psalm and creation in his day and age, in the mid-1800s, he says this, Astronomy shows us what an insignificant being a human being appears amidst the immensity of creation. Though he is an object of the paternal care and the mercy of the Most High, yet he is but a grain of sand to the whole earth when compared with the myriads of beings that people the amplitudes of creation. What is the whole of this globe in comparison of the hundred millions of suns and worlds which by the telescope have been described? What are they in comparison with the glories of the sky? He's speaking about, you know, uh, uh, astronomy and the stars and the galaxies, but he's speaking from his day and age. He, he didn't have the, the blessing of of viewing pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope or the James Webb Space Telescope or computer images um, from these larger telescopes to, to see what we see and to know what we know, that, that it's far greater than, than we could ever imagine. And in the midst of that, we feel small and insignificant, like a grain of sand on the seashore. And God intended it that way. And this is, in a sense, what, what David is feeling in this psalm. Uh, many have uh, thought about this psalm, have, have um, speculated that David wrote this when he was a shepherd boy. Because as many of, uh, in, in comparison to his other psalms, there's not a lot of... Um, woe or strife or trial or challenge or you know it, it's it's almost uh it's happy it's joyful it's it, there's it's awe-inspiring and we think of him we, we picture him writing this as a shepherd boy out in the fields at night and just uh viewing the the immensity of the stars and especially in his day and age in which there there wasn't much light pollution at all um, probably wasn't much light at all in terms of uh, campfires or torches or things that would the light the cities. And also, in addition to that, he, he was in Israel where it's a, somewhat of a drier climate, uh, like the desert. You can see more at night and you can see more of the stars. And so he could see what he was viewing was something like these, these pictures that we see um, uh, of, of people um, of the night sky, of the Milky Way, of all its grandeur. 
And, and in, in viewing this, in, in, in thinking about creation and reflecting upon it, he reflects upon God's glory and his glory displayed in creation. And, and he erupts in praise of God. And, and so this, this whole psalm is, is just a psalm of praising God and glorifying him because of his glory, which he has displayed in his creation. And as David reflects upon that, he also reflects upon himself and man in general. And so as we look at this psalm, we'll see um, it in three parts. We'll see three reflections of David upon the glory of God displayed in his creation. We'll first see God's glory in his condescension to man. Then God's glory in his consideration of man. And then God's glory in his command of man. First we see God's glory in his condescension to man. In verses 1 and 2, as David writes, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So we see his, his glory and his condescension to man, that, that God in his uh, infinite uh, glory and his eternality and his greatness and his splendor and his majesty has condescended to man, has come down to man in his revelation and displaying his, revel his glory, revealing himself throughout creation to man, but also through his word, through the prophets and the apostles. But we see his glory throughout um, creation, through his revelation, primarily his revelation, his general revelation. Revelation, in a sense, as theologians look at revelation, how God has revealed himself to man, there's, there's two categories. We have the general revelation and the special revelation. The general revelation is the revelation of God in creation. As we see the, the, the beauty of creation, the form, the function, the intricacies, the complexities, um, all that creation tells us uh, in, in terms of, of physics and mathematics and logic and, and things that um, science, that science is even possible because God has created the world in a logical manner and it, that the, the world, the creation is intelligible. It can be known. Psalm 19, a, a, another uh, psalm of David in which he, uh, he reflects upon uh, God's revelation first in his general revelation in creation, then in his special revelation in his word. And that, that's how it's interesting because Psalm, and, psalm 8 and Psalm 19 are almost um, pairs, are almost uh, uh, along the same theme is and Psalm 19 is split into two parts a general revelation and then the special revelation of God as he uh, displays his glory throughout creation and in the first half of Psalm 19 we read this the heavens are telling of the glory of God or some translations would say the heavens declare the glory of God. But that, that verb is a, is a continuous verb. It's a participle. It's an ongoing action that the heavens are continually declaring the glory of God. And, and as David goes on, he says, And the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. He's saying, in a, in a sense, that the heavens, the stars, the, the heavenly bodies are continually declaring the glory of God. And not only that, but sunset and sunrise declares the glory of God. And, you know, um, 
You never will meet a person that hates sunsets or, you know, it's not, it's just like, eh. (laughs) <laughs> you know, they're just indifferent to a sunset. And what's interesting is, you know, um, that the sun is always setting. And so there's a sense that there's this living, active artwork of God continually, continuing to be displayed to mankind, to human beings upon the earth as, as he is, is glorifying himself through his own creation. David sees this, and, and, and he, he just, he's just in awe of God's majesty, of, of his splendor, which he has displayed. And, and we see this in terms of general revelation, most notably in, in Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, but there, there's an even greater um, aspect of it in the rebuke of Job. And if, uh, you know, you're, you're ever feeling, you know, a bit too big for your britches, that's a place to go, <laughs> you know, or a bit too proud, or you need to be humbled. Um, you know, at the end of Job in, in uh, chapter 38 to 42, and, and just uh, God rebukes Job, and he does so by way of his creation and his general revelation, and, and, and not just... Um, uh, creation itself, but the order, the form, the function, and, and all the animals. And he, he goes through each and every one of them. He goes through and he talks about um, the way he has created them, the way he has created the world, and, and, and just the systems of, of weather and climate and, and the ecosystems and animals. And, and he goes on and on, rebuking Job by way of declaring his glory in creation. He's like, what do you know, Job? Do you know, uh, the, have you seen the storehouses of snow? You know, and this is along the same lines of, of what um, uh, David is thinking, but from a more positive aspect that David is just, he's just blown away at God's majesty in the heavens. Thinking about, his glory, that, that God is declaring his glory every day and every night throughout the skies and the heavens and the things which he has created. That, that God displays his glory and condescending to man through his revelation, but also through his providence, through his special uh, revelation and the way he is working in human affairs. We see his glory displayed in, 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 in working through mankind. In verse 2, as he says, From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. There's this, this sense of that the fact that um, infants and nursing babies uh, declare his glory or proclaim his, his praise uh, or... Also, in the sense that that um, they show that his wisdom is greater than that of man's, and this is something that that uh, uh, Jesus would point to as he speaks to uh, as he's being rebuked because uh, by the the Pharisees because uh, all the people are are shouting out to him and children are are praising him as he in his triumphal entry. And so he quotes this. He quotes verse 2 of Psalm 8 in Matthew 21. And as we read, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. That, that even children uh, see the glory of God, and even children in the day of Christ saw that there was something special about him, that he was different, that he was, came from God. And, and it's interesting that there's a sense that, that all children... 
They, they, they come out of the womb, and, and as they begin to speak and grow up into toddlers, they all believe in God. Kids have to be taught. They have to be indoctrinated. They have to be educated not to believe in God. They just naturally believe in God. They, they, they know there's a God. They, they, they say things that just glorify God and, and, and as they go about their, their uh, go about the world and, and discover the world. And, and you see, and it's, David is somewhat along the same lines. You know, you ever see a toddler or a, a young child and, and they're just just discovering so many wonderful things about bugs and trees and plants and the sky and they're just in wonder and awe and colors. And this is, in a sense, how we should uh, look at creation. Praising God for all of it. But there's also a sense that, that God is condescending to man through, uh, his, through his providence and the way he uses uh, infants, babies, and, and, and also um, peoples. Using the weak and the foolish to confound the strong and the wise. This is what's happening here in verse 2. He says, uh, uh, because of your adversaries, you have established strength uh, you know, through infants and nursing babies because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. He, he's doing what he, he often does. He's turning the world upside down. or He's, he's showing us that, that his ways are higher than our ways, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, that, that um, the foolish things of the, he, he has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, as he, he speaks to them about their calling, that they weren't mighty or noble or wise, but God has chosen them to confound the wise and the mighty and the noble. And this is what's happening here in verse 2 of Psalm 8. He's, he's glorifying himself through infants and nursing babies, through the weak, through the foolish, through that which the, in the world's eyes is not to shame that which is. He reveals himself through his creation, through his providence, in, in glorifying himself through history and human affairs. And it's interesting, as, as uh, Jesus is declaring himself and, and the gospel and the kingdom to uh, the people, to the Jews, uh, during his earthly ministry, he says this in, in Matthew 11. He says this concerning uh, uh, just the way the gospel is going out and the way people are being saved and, and those who are not in the eyes of the world, the, the weak and the foolish Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Which brings us to David's second re reflection upon the glory of God displayed in creation. That's God's glory and his consideration of man. You've seen God's glory and his condescension to man, that he has revealed himself to man through his creation, through his providence, and just the way he works in creation throughout history. And now we see God's glory and his consideration of man. Verses 3 to 5, David says, When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him? And the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. And it's here that we get to the center of the whole psalm with the question, what is man? What is man that you remember him or that you consider him? That you care for him? And and as I've said before, and and it's a characteristic of many psalms, this sense of uh, either an inclusio where the front and the end are, are, are the same, the front and the back are the same, or the beginning and the end are the same, but there's also this sense of a chiastic structure where... It's almost like a, um, an inverted V. If you were to outline, it goes, you know, like this to the center and then down. And so, the verse one, we have this where David says, "O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth!" And then he repeats that in verse nine, "O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth!" And then the center of this psalm is verse four: "What is man that you remember him?" And the son of man that you care for him. As he reflects upon the glory of God and his majesty. And then he thinks, well, who am I? Or what is mankind that that you would even condescend? That you would consider mankind? But we, we not only see God's glory displayed in his creation. In his condescension to man. In his revelation to man. But in his consideration of man. In his consideration of man in relation to the rest of the universe, that David says in verse 3, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, this greatness and this splendor in the heavens, in the sky, in the night sky, who am I? What is man that you remember him? What is mankind or humanity that you even care for him? And particularly in relation to the universe, in relation to the the glory of his handiwork in the universe, he says, what is man? As he talks about the, the, the work of your fingers, your handiwork. I like what one commentator writes. He says, this anthropomorphism, which is a big word to mean um, the way in which God um, explains himself in in the Bible that he, um, and through the prophets and the apostles, gives almost uh, human characteristics. Your fingers, or your right hand, or your arm, or your eyes. And we know the Bible says that God is spirit. And it's only in, in Jesus taking on human flesh that God has fingers and arms and eyes. But he says, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, this commentary, he says, your fingers miniaturizes the magnitude of the universe in the presence of the creator. It's almost like it, it takes you know, the greatness, the splendor, the immensity of the universe And in relationship to God, it's just like a little tiny, his handiwork. It's like like something he's tinkering with in in, in a workshop. He just shows the the greatness of God. And and the fingers, it it, kind of shows that that, uh, dexterity of a craftsman in the way he is... He has put it all together or a seamstress in using not just the hands, but the, the fingers to, to create this majestic universe in, in all the, the uh, stars and the galaxies and, and the nebula and all the things we see in those pictures from NASA. And he, he contrasts that with God's consideration of mankind. We see God's glory displayed in his consideration of man in relation to the universe, but also into, in relation to the form and the function of the heavenly bodies. He talks about the moon and the stars which you have established. You, you have fixed their place. You have ordered their function so that even, uh, you know, we, we, we had to... Um, discover things like uh, quantum physics and, and certain 
uh, calculus and, and, and uh, complex mathematical formula to describe the, the function of the planets and the universe, which is interesting because math in itself, math and science have often um, been placed at odds with faith or with Christianity, but in, in reality, it just reveals the greatness of God. It, it points us to God because, because uh, uh, only because of, of God's intelligent design can, can we even, uh, does math work? And, and it's really just as, as one um, Christian apologist who's also an astronomer has said, uh, Jason Lyle, that, that mathematics is in a sense the blueprint of God's creation. It's not an invention. Math is not an invention. It's a discovery. It's a discovery. It's inherent in the universe. As we see his handiwork. And yet he considers man. We see his glory displayed in his consideration of man in relation to the universe, but also in relation to redemptive history. Verse 4. What is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him. See his glory displayed in his consideration of man in relation to the fallenness and insignificance of man. You, you remember him. Despite his fallenness, despite his total depravity, despite the fact that he has disobeyed you, that he has rebelled against you, you remember him. You care for him. But also in relation to the future of man and the redemption of man. As we see this phrase, the son of man, the son of man, a, a phrase, a, a title that Jesus would take on, that, that it would point towards Christ. It's a phrase used of uh, Ezekiel. But we see this, uh, we see this uh, quoted by the author to Hebrews. And I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 and see this. As the author is, is speaking about the glory of of Christ and who he is that that God had to take on human flesh to redeem man because man fell um, that that uh, man needed a redeemer that redeemer came in in Jesus Christ and the author to Hebrews he writes this in Hebrews 2 and verse 5 for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking but one has testified somewhere saying what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him you have made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands you have put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So as, you know, uh, as the uh, author to Hebrews testifies and, and he gives a correct interpretation of Psalm 8. That Psalm 8, and specifically here, is speaking of Christ. This is a, a messianic psalm. It's pointing to the, the second Adam, the perfect man that would come to redeem man. And we see God's glory displayed in his consideration of man and not only in relation to the universe, but in relation to redemptive history, and then in relation to the creative order. That, verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. This is speaking of man in general, but it's also pointing to the perfect man, Jesus Christ, that, that God has created and considers man as a pinnacle of his creation. He has given man inherent and derivative glory and majesty as his image bearer. He has placed man in, in, in terms of the creative order a little bit lower than the angels. He crowned him with glory and majesty that he has placed man above the rest of creation to, to rule it, to subdue it, 
to have dominion over it. But it's ultimately uh, referring to Jesus as a perfect man who would redeem all of creation. One commentator, he writes this, that Psalm 8 is cited four times in the New Testament, where it is recognized as a prophecy of Messiah, three of which are in direct application to Messiah. 1 Corinthians 15.27, Ephesians 1.22, Hebrews 2.6-10, which I just read, Matthew 21.16, which I read before about the... the um, from the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength. This commentary goes on. He says, the psalmist understood that this song would be fulfilled directly by the Messiah. The Son of Man is a direct link to the Son of Psalm 2, 7 and 12 and appears to be associated with the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 10 to 14. As a royal figure, he is crowned with glory and majesty and rules over all creation. As a human being, he is a little lower than God, not in his essence, but in his human attributes. As the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus fulfills humanity's ideal. All that humanity was meant to be and do, and directly fulfills this psalm. And we know that this psalm would, in a sense, speak of, of mankind, of Adam and the fact that in the garden he was to uh, subdue the earth, to have dominion over it and all over the animals as, as uh, this psalm speaks about in, in verses uh, 5, 6, and 7, and even 8. But Adam would fall. And then Christ would come to not only redeem uh, man but to redeem mankind and the creative order. And so as we look through this psalm and we consider the glory of God in creation, we see God's glory in his condescension to man, see God's glory in his consideration of man, and then finally we see God's glory in his command of man, that God in creating man has given man commands. He's not only given him a single command, in a sense what theologians would call the creation mandate, where some have um, different terminology for it. But nonetheless, it, it points us back to Genesis 1, when uh, God said in Genesis 1, in verse 26 to 28, uh, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. That's what David's talking about. He's pointing back to the, the original command that God has uh, displayed his glory and his command to man, the purpose and the function uh, given to man, the design of man to be his vice regent in creation or his ambassador upon the earth as his image bearer to rule and glorify God in his being and his function and his purpose and in relation to the rest of creation. Also to exercise dominion and stewardship. Verses 7, eight, seven and 8. Um, or actually in verse 6. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. And also the animals of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. We see that, that man is called to exercise dominion and stewardship as God's image bearer, as a reflection of, of God upon the earth. To exercise dominion and stewardship over the useful as well as the wild. He has this picture of these categories of the beasts of the field or these categories of animals. All sheep and oxen. And, and in the Hebrew, it, it's not... Um, these are more general terms. It could be 
uh, translated cattle or livestock. All those domesticated animals, all those livestock, the useful animals that are, are used for, for milk or meat or uh, uh, skins, um, sheep and oxen, cattle, donkeys, goats. But not only them, he says, and also the animals of the field. So we have these two categories uh, that, that man has, has been given dominion to, to exercise dominion and stewardship over the useful man, animals as well as the wild. But then we also see uh, uh, another uh, category or, or, or another pair of categories that man is, is called to exercise dominion and stewardship over the heights and the depths of creation. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, the, those that uh, can reach to the heights, the, the, the heights of creation, and then the, the depths of creation. This scale of, of uh, you know, those uh, as high as you can go and as low as you can go, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, you are to exercise dominion over it. You're to rule over it as in a sense, a reflection of God ruling over his creation. I like what Bruce Waukee um, wrote about this psalm in his commentary. He says this, he says, Psalm 8 is Genesis 1, 26 to 28 set to music. In a sense, that creation mandate in, in, in the, the purpose and the function, the, the, when, when God first... Uh, uh, created man and, and explains the, the purpose and the function and the design for which he created mankind to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, to have dominion, to subdue it, to steward this earth. Bruce Walkie goes on, he says, uh, this is Genesis 1, set to music. The roll call of creatures in Psalm, Psalm 8 strikingly parallels the Genesis cosmogony. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth. The parallel puts beyond reasonable doubt the poet's transformation of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 into a hymn. And that's basically what's going on here. Or as others have said that that uh, Psalm 8 is, in a sense, a divine commentary on Genesis 1 of glorifying God, of, of explaining uh, uh, His glory displayed in not only creation, but in, in the creation of man and placing man over His creation to exercise dominion, to, to subdue it, to, in a sense, uh, uh, be an image of God, a reflection of God as ruler, as Lord over the creation. And then in, in expounding upon this and in reflecting upon this, uh, David ends where he begins. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's in a sense uh, uh, the, the purpose of man to glorify God on earth, to proclaim his glory, not only in our reflection upon uh, uh, his creation, but in, in how we live and move and have our being in creation. But, but it's interesting, as, as David is reflecting upon creation here, and he kind of also hints at the fall of man and, and points forward to redemption and to the perfect man to come, Jesus Christ, there's a sense that, that Paul uses uh, creation as well as he speaks of the gospel in Romans. And, and he expounds upon the gospel throughout the whole uh, letter to the Romans. But there's a couple passages in Romans in which he points back to the creation in explaining the gospel. He begins in the fall of man. In Romans 1.20. And I'd like you to see this. Romans 1.20. As he talks about the um, sinfulness of man. 
the depravity of man, the fact that mankind is guilty before his creator, before a holy, righteous judge. He says this in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Saying that mankind cannot... Uh, bring forth an excuse that, that he did not know, that he did not know his purpose or his design or his function, or that there, there is a creator, that there is a God, because God has displayed his glory in all of creation, as Psalm 8 says, as Psalm 19 says, as much of the scripture says. And Paul uses that as part of his, part of his argument in proclaiming the gospel in the letter to the Romans, that God clearly has revealed himself in creation. And then as he talks about the, the, the nature of redemption, how we are actually saved, in Romans 5, he talks about uh, mankind, about uh, uh, the fallenness of Adam and how because of Adam's fall that, that sin has spread and there is a curse from, from Adam all the way to every single person, but then that there would be a perfect man who would come to redeem fallen man. Romans 5 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. That Christ came as a type of Adam. Adam was the perfect man until he fell. But Christ came to do what Adam failed to do, to live perfectly, to, in a sense, uh, exercise dominion, to subdue the earth. But he would do it more in a sense of a spiritual sense and redeeming sinful man and obeying God's law perfectly, being that perfect sacrifice for mankind. But he will return to exercise complete dominion over all of creation. And then once again in Romans 8, as Paul talks about the creation uh, suffering under the weight of the curse and the, the, the fallenness, but also longing for redemption. Romans 8 and verse 19, it says, For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And here's the thing as David was probably reflecting upon uh, God's glory and creation, and we can look at creation, we can see God's beauty, God's wisdom, God's handiwork, His glory that even as Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, and we see beauty, we see splendor, we see majesty, we see transcendence we see intelligent design but there's also a sense that there's something missing that the creation itself doesn't fulfill us we we, we still feel empty it's because of our fallenness our, our our brokenness that we as as paul says uh we we eagerly wait for the revealing of or the redemption of our bodies for the creation itself to be redeemed that, that there is a sense that we can look at creation we can see its splendor its majesty but we also see its brokenness 
It's fallenness. And that creation itself should, and the world, and as we think of ourselves as creations, we should see our own fallenness and long for the, not only our Redeemer to return, but for God to redeem all of creation. And that there is this promise that He will. That He will redeem it. That the story is not over. That there is an ending. That He will, uh, in a sense, uh, bring things to a conclusion. To right what was made wrong. To make all things new and to do that through the perfect man, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will return to rule and reign in righteousness and to make all things new. And so that's part of this psalm is to, on one hand, to see the glory of God in creation, to see his majesty, to see what man was originally intended to be but to also see the brokenness in that this creation and mankind himself needs a redeemer and needs redemption and that there is a promise of a redeemer, of the perfect man, that who will come to redeem creation. And so as we look to creation, we also look to recreation and the hope of a new heavens and a new earth which will far exceed the splendor of this creation of these heavens and this earth. And so we live in light of that. Heavenly Father, as fallen and as broken as this world is, there's still beauty. We still see your wisdom, your design, your handiwork. We still see wonderful displays of your artwork every evening, every morning in the sunsets and the sunrises and the clouds and the songs of the birds and just the, the way the nature sings and all the animals and the different ecosystems and climates. There's beauty. But we also see brokenness. We also see fallenness. We also see the fact that Things aren't the way they should be. We've been thrust out of the garden. And this world is broken. And it longs for redemption. So Lord, help us to balance that. That we can, on one hand, uh, be thankful and reflect upon your goodness and creation. But on the other hand, to look forward to a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth that will be come about through the rule and reign of your Son. Help us to live lives worthy of his calling, of his gospel, of his name, and to eagerly wait for his return. It's in his name we pray. Amen.